Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke to citizens in Little Village as part of the youth outreach program at Yellow Cali, checked in with an internet-based artist on digital reality and realty, and discussed Chicago education trends and how they affect immigrant communities. All this and more, plus the Trump Diaries on Lumpen Week in Review for April 21, 2017. Fred and Mike Klonsky spoke with Jose Rico of the United Way on education, immigrants, and the Trump crackdown that's roiling the little village. A former executive director in the Obama administration, he spoke about being Breitbarted, hitting left with the Klonsky brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Well, welcome back uh, to the Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers. This is uh, WLPN 105.5 FM in Chicago and on all the other places you can find us. Uh, we're back um, with our guest, Jose Rico. Michael, did you want to? Uh... Well, Jose, uh, uh, Jose Rico, uh, I should say we le- I left off my introduction of Jose uh, when he was a principal at the... Uh, at Moss uh, in, in Little Village, uh, Lawndale High School, it's called now, correct, uh, Jose? Uh, but Jose also went on to be, uh, become a uh, an advisor on uh, on Latino education affairs and other things in the White House uh, with the Obama administration. How how did that go for you, Jose? Well, I, you know, uh, it's funny you mentioned that because I just remembered uh, uh, <laughs> when. Um, the first, the first, the first. I want the gossip. No, no. So, I want White House gossip. <laughs> well, no, no. Like, you know, there's, there's uh, the first announcement, and, and Mike knows this, that came out is um, uh, I was on Bright by News. Remember? I do, yes. Um, so my first foray into the national scene was that uh, I was put on Bright by News by Glenn Beck as a Chicago communist who was trying to uh, what? what, what? Put, You're a communist in yeah, Chicago? Yeah, Chicago communist <laughs> that was trying Isn't to, everybody. to, right, to, uh, <laughs> to uh, spread the, uh, uh, you know, unionization of public education throughout the country. Uh, so Wait, that, was that supposed to be a bad thing or a good thing? Well, again, so I thought it was a really good thing. The bad thing was that it was in, uh, that it was in it was Breitbart in and it was Glenn Beck putting that in. And I remember giving uh, Mike a call and I said, hey, Mike, you know, just so you know, this is this is what's happening. And when Mike looked at it, he started. We both started laughing. We just thought it was funny. I was funny. totally shocked to have <laughs> somebody who's been red baited anywhere near me. <laughs> Dad is looking down on this. <laughs> so, uh, Jose, uh, you uh, then when you came back to Chicago, uh, you became active again in uh, in uh, affairs, political affairs in the community. Uh, both around uh, the immigration battles, fighting for immigration rights, and also back in education again, uh, where you became a a, a leader in the uh, advisory Latino advisory committee for Chicago Public Schools. Is that correct? Yeah. So I mean, when I came back, you know, I, I uh, having learned a little bit about how policy gets done and doesn't get done. You know, you know, came back and wanted to get involved again with with folks that were trying to improve education here in the city. So I you know, was on the board of the Latino Policy Forum, uh, became involved with uh, several community groups like the Bryant Park Neighborhood Council, um, and wanted to uh, see what is it that I could do. And at that time, 
there was this um, formation by Barbara Bird Bennett of this Latino Advisory Committee. Dare we say her name? <laughs> sure, <laughs> why not? Um, and <laughs> and um, and you know the purpose of it, from what you know, she told us was, I don't have this is my like Latino kitchen cabinet because I don't have enough folks on, um, on in the Board of Education or, or, or at the board level to be able to give me a good sense of what's going on. So the first thing we told her was, well, hire some damn people. <laughs> I mean, this is not – there's, there's they, no rocket They get to appoint the board members <laughs> right, if they right. got a problem. Right, right, right. So hire some damn people. So, uh, so she did. You know, she hired a couple of people, and actually uh, Jesse uh, Ruiz became on the board. Um, and ever, you know, throughout the whole scandal – when uh, Forrest Claypool uh, came on, you know, met with him one time, um, and uh, same thing, right? Forrest was like, "Well, what what can I do?" And we were like, "Hire some damn people, <laughs> hire some people, uh, make sure you don't close community schools, make sure the programs that are um, that are effective for Latino students that really work for our students continue to be supported, and use us to be able to help you uh, with that process." Uh, uh, needless to say, he never did. Um, and when the um, when the decision to cut funds uh, uh, recently came out, we all just said, you know, this is ridiculous. We're obviously right now being not used with the intention that we want to be used, and that's when we just resigned. Yes, we're talking to Jose Rico, uh, who, uh, along with other members of the advisory committee, the uh, what, what was it called, Jose? The Latino Advisory Committee. The Latino mm-hmm. Advisory Committee to CPS. Uh, Resigned in mass, right? right. Uh, in fe- back in was that February? Yeah, that was in February. So, so uh, what's happened? Uh, how did the, uh, what's happened since then? When, yeah, so when? interesting, right? Because what happened since then was, you know, we resigned and we got uh, uh, some good support from the Latino Caucus from the City Council, and again, we got good support from uh, teachers. Uh, we got support from other neighborhood uh, organizations and associations. We got. You know, a lot of support from people that have been trying to fight for equity around this issue. We got uh, a great amount of support from the African-American community also asking, hey, how can African-American leaders uh, get involved in forming something similar to this? And uh, and we resigned on Tuesday and on Friday the board announced that they re- that they reinstituted some of the cuts, right? So the schools that got cut, we got back close to uh, $15 million, which I thought was a good thing. But uh, we went back and said, all right, uh, what else, you know, what, what is the commitment to Latino students and all students in CPS to make sure this stuff doesn't happen again? So we got contacted by the mayor's office, and the mayor's office said, well, we want you all to reinstate yourselves. And we said, all right, so what's the commitment from the mayor's office? And to this day, we haven't heard anything. So, so what's, the, what's the plan now? You're try, are you trying to, to rebuild uh, the rebuild that committee or build something new uh well you know i the plan right now is there are many people like i said including um aldermen and other uh, community uh, organizations that have been working with us and saying hey we want to be part of this committee because if if uh, they're serious if the mayor's office is serious about uh integrating input we want to make sure that it's something that uh, uh, we want to be a part of, and we want to hold them accountable. Now so that's you, what we're doing right now. When you say aldermen, are you talking about African American aldermen? So right now, the, the, right now, the the 
the the Latino caucus uh, are the folks that have just been very supportive, um, and um, and uh, aldermen in the Latino caucus who are also part of the education committee. So, for example, Alderman Sue Garza is somebody that you know really wants to get involved, and we want her to be involved, and uh, and uh, she's somebody that previous guest on our show, yeah. I might add. Yeah. So Sue, you know, Sue came right away and said, "Hey, I want to be involved in this, and is there any way I could be helpful? Let me know." And and so we we want to be we want to get her involved, and there's other community based organizations that want to get involved, and we're going to get them involved. And, ha- and so, how do you connect this to the elected school board question? Or, is, is, I, mean, well, I mean, how many times can you resign from the <laughs> yeah, as the, yeah, as the uh, as the Latino committee on the uh, right? I mean, as long as the, as long as this is uh, autocratically decided by the mayor and his and his minions. It's kind of- so this is this is to me basically the question that I think for the mayor's office and his advisors to really think about, right? So, given that right now there is no real representation. Uh, in a way that's representative at the school board. And you have 16 people who volunteered to be representative of uh, Latino issues uh, to advise the school board. And Forrest Claypool, it does not want that type of input. Uh, and right now the mayor's office is balking. So I think it just makes a, an argument by their inaction and their inability to really commit to something to say that the only way to go is through an elected school board. I just I just don't see any other way for you to be able to square this. When, you know, you have the, the plurality, almost the majority of students in CPS are Latino, and a lot of the uh, gains that you see in graduation rates and test scores and population certainly are due to Latino students. Uh, Jose, uh, you've also been, as you pointed out, you've also been uh, very active in uh, uh, this immigration rights struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us a give us a uh, from your point of view. Give us a picture of what's what's going on with that here in Chicago and nationally now that we're we've uh, you're, that immigrants uh, obviously are not even considered our own people anymore. Right. <laughs> right. What, what's your take on on that? Well, you know, I think you know, especially in the Latino community, this is a very personal issue, right? I mean, every every everybody in almost every Latino family has uh, somebody in their immediate family that's here undocumented. I mean, I I came here undocumented. I was undocumented all the way until I was in college, um, and lived with the fear of my parents being deported. For, for many years. So so for me, this is something that, unfortunately, we're in a situation where uh, people are living in fear. And, and you know, the, the biggest uh, change, I think, that happened to us after the election is this ideology that Sean Spicer and all these folks are, are spewing out there. Uh, immigrants have been feeling since day one, right? Immigrants, whether it's the war, whether it's the, you know, 10,000 new immigration agents, what we see every day, uh, we saw last week on Thursday, four ICE officers uh, driving down 26th Street, looking for a particular person to uh, deport them, and then being a and then uh, apprehending four other people in the middle of the day on 26th Street with ICE agents and un- unmarked cars uh, uh, going into their house, and you'll see that in back of the yards, and you see that in Bryant Park. So we're seeing the equivalent of what was happening in Nazi Germany happening here. This week, Adeline Salgado from WhatsApp spoke about interacting with police, the importance of community events, and the youth in Little Village. Community groups and Lay Gappa are seeking to transform the relationship between CPD and local communities, 
and are working towards equal access to safe and thriving neighborhoods for all Chicago residents. What's Up broadcasts live from Studio Y at Yolo Cali every Saturday at noon. Now we're going to start with a testimonial from a community server and a victim of police misconduct. Maria presents a story that she came across with with four young kids working a mural in the community of Britton Park as a cop approaches them. So here's Maria and her testimonial. Muy buenas tardes. Maria Díaz para servirle, servidora de la comunidad. I have always had great respect and admiration for our Chicago police officers until I had an, an unfortunate encounter with the police. What brought me here is that I want to see justice. I want to see that the police do the job that they are supposed to do, which is protect and serve, not use force and abuse. As I said earlier, I've always had great admiration and respect for the Chicago police. And there are many awesome officers on the force. Unfortunately, there are a few that spoil all the good that many have done. And when I talk about force and abuse, I'm talking about police officers that are not doing their best to protect and serve. I had an experience, this is going back several years ago, where I was working in the community. As I said, I am a server for the community. I love my community, whether it's La Villita, Brighton Park, Back of the Yards, uh, Burridge, which is miles away from here. I'm a member of the community. So several years ago, I was working in the Brighton Park community, and one of the... Um, a property owner lent us his, his entire building to do murals because we were talking about peace and we were also talking about substance abuse prevention. So he let us use his building to create as many murals as we wanted. There were four youth who were working with me and we were doing a great job. We, we were priming the building. We had the sidewalk covered with sheets so that the sidewalk wouldn't be affected by the paint. And this police officer, I remember her, a woman, Caucasian, that she pulls up and she asks, what's going on? I give her my name. I tell her what we're doing, what it's all about. She says, great, keep up the awesome work. Drives away. She comes back less than two minutes later, and she yells out, hey, Maria in a very friendly tone. You and your kids have IDs? Of course we have IDs. But now I'm on the alert. Why are you asking me for my ID? And the youth too. And she, um, she says that she wants our IDs because she wants to fill out these little cards with our information for our protection. <laughs> I ask her what those cards are, and she shows me these little beige, like four by four cards. And she says that she's going to have all of our information there, just in case any gangbanger tries to do us harm, that we're going to be okay because she will know everything about us. I was truly offended and insulted by this officer because she, she was trying to deceive us. 
I mean, openly deceive us. She wanted for us to give us, to give her our IDs so that she could fill out contact cards. And I said to her, officer, it is my understanding that these cards are for suspicious activities or suspicious individuals of such activities. We're not doing anything suspicious. No, 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 Maria, this is for your safety. I told her no. None, none of my four youth nor I are going to give you our IDs. She became so angry. She threw her the cards. She threw them in her vehicle. She slammed the door. I mean, really slammed it. She jumps into her car. <laughs> and as she's driving away, she stops and yells, Hey, Maria, but yells it, right? You could have heard her a mile away. Yes, officer. She said, the property you're painting on may be private, but the streets are federal property. They belong to the city. Well, if they belong to the city, they're not federal property, right? But I didn't go into that with her. I said, yes, officer. There is no paint on them. Don't worry. Do you not see the covers? She went away. And then I ran into her again several weeks later. Because, you know, to do a mural, it's not an overnight job. Several weeks later, she comes by again. But this time, I had a very, very prominent community member with me. Someone who always attends meetings like crazy, whether they're police meetings, city council meetings, organizational meetings. This man is known everywhere. And I told him about what happened. And here she comes in her vehicle. And he yells out to her. I don't remember her name. But he called her by name and he told her, why don't you stop right now? Why? Because he was white and I'm not white, I'm brown. Did that make a difference? Because she didn't stop to say anything in his presence. How come? So just that one incident just brought down the admiration that I had for the police officer, that she wanted to trick us into giving information that she did not need. And she wanted this information to put where? In what database? Especially with everything that's going on today. Why did she want to deceive us? What quota was she trying to meet? And I did call and report it. I hope the report was filed. And if not, it's here now. I would tell people to speak up. Speak up. Report these things. If you consider that it's abuse, report it. If you feel that it's just not right, question it. If you feel that, if you feel in your gut that you need to take further action, take it. If you feel that you cannot give your name, you cannot go in person, then do it anonymously. But do something. Don't keep it quiet. Because unfortunately, for everyone who stays quiet, the abuse multiplies. And if we don't stand up for ourselves and we don't stand united, the abuse is not going to stop. Well, I've never been afraid. Okay. And... 
after this incident, I didn't feel afraid. I felt angry. Because if this happened to me, someone who's already way up there in age, well, not that much, but that I am an older person, I think, what must our youth go through when they are stopped by the, by the police? And when our youth tell us, yeah, the officer pulled me or grabbed me, shouted in my face, and that we sometimes think, he's only exaggerating. Police officer wouldn't do that. But this officer did this to me, a member of the community who fights for the community. So what must it be for, for someone who doesn't know how to speak up? What must it be like? I would like to ask that of the police directly. I would like to know why they are targeting the youth. I would like to know why, just because you see a youth walking down the street, the first question is, what gang do you belong to? You've got drugs on you? Why? Well, if they aren't in school, why aren't you in school? But that's not the questions they ask. So I would like to know from the police why. Yes, and this is directly to our police. Come on, you're human. At least I'd like to think that. You have families. How do you want your families to be treated? You have children within those families. How do you want your children to be treated? You demand respect, but remember that respect is a two-way street, not one way. And just because you wear a badge does not give you the power the liberty to abuse, it doesn't. Hey, guys, you just listened to Maria, her testimonial with uh, police misconduct. And I know you guys heard that in the end she was kind of, you know, mad. And, like, it's okay, you know, you guys at least felt the vibe of her voice, of the way she was talking. So I I I hope you guys understand that this is true. This is what, what everything that's happening in the community is true. Bad at Sports welcome Leah Devon Sorrentino in the studio to discuss internet art, pop culture, and crying at reality TV. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Uh, and we are joined by the you know like penultimately lovely. Leah, I was, Devin, Sorrentino. I was, I was worried about what lovely I was going to get because he got lovely. Yes, yeah, so I was like, oh, no. I was, it's like running out. I was left off the lovely, lovely list. You're, you're, Shouldn't you're the guest there. be the most lovely? Well, I think he, I think he teed it up that way. When you look, when you Google Leah, you only see this Leah. Well done. Good ser- search on SEO. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's what I do. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're t- – yeah, I'm an artist who makes work about the internet, about pop culture – about online cultures. I feel like if I didn't have a strong online Google search, like then maybe I should give up that path as an artist. It'd be like, like a painter, a painter, <laughs> like, painter who can't paint. Yeah. yeah. It's like a um, digital animator who can't animate. That's, that's me. That's definitely <laughs> That's right. Uh, but yeah, I used to make like really large scale installations um, that I was like, yeah, this is this is immersive media. And I was like, oh, wait, people don't actually exist that way. What is actually immersive is the Internet. And that's where, like, I started shifting all of my work to being online because you can have work in art spaces and have a great conversation with a bunch of artists, but the reach and the 
diversity of who's going to be interacting with your work or talking about it or experiencing it starts to become very uh, narrow and the conversations about it also become very redundant. So that's why I was like, oh, the internet has lots of conversations happening all the time that are often weird and wonderful. I want to be there. Well, there's so many more people, right? It's not just that same same rehashed circle in the same way as well, getting outside of the art world. There's a lot more people, The and there's an interesting like anonymity to it, because even though there you have a wider audience, you actually have no face to put to it. So it's, it's sometimes it almost feels riskier, because you actually don't know if what you're putting out there um, is working, is doing anything. And it's also competing. It's like really facing that competition that I think that uh, people are afraid of. And that's why a lot of times art can feel very insular because it can become in like a safer space. Well, I mean, that's sort of interesting because the, the internet can be anonymous in terms of feedback unless you let it give you feedback. So I'm guessing you don't like have comments. Oh, I do. Okay. And, yeah. and are they just horrible and nasty the way the rest of the world of internet comments are <laughs> yeah. or just irrelevant? It depends. Um, I ran a web series for like two years just short videos that I would put out every week with a collaborator. And I rarely, I mostly put them on YouTube and Facebook, so um, somewhat of a, a limited reach still because it's your friends that are normally tuning in. And then I was like, well, I'm going to put, I made one that I thought was really strong. And I was like, this one's going to Reddit. I'm so pumped. I'm going to push it to the world of Reddit. And like then the, it was a, a fake company, uh, for uh, like a Fitbit type item, but it would track you going to the bathroom, specifically number two. So I thought this was really funny. This is great internet <laughs> content. We can say that. <laughs> yeah, can yeah say I can, I can say number two. Number two? Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the name of the item is- It's not a word, it's a number. I don't a... have to hit the dump button. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh. Yeah. Poop jokes. Yeah. <laughs> What's the name of the, of the poop it? Well, it, it has a curse word in it. So, so yeah, it's yeah. probably better not to. Yeah, we're, just, then we're not saying it. Google yeah. it. Again, if you Google, Google me, yeah. you'll, you'll find it. But wait, is this, was this series called Lunchtime? Lunchtime. It was, the series was called Lunchtime. It was, it's hilarious. If you want to <laughs> know, I mean, for all of our studio audience, Leah does not look like she is uh, on Dynasty, but often in the, in the web series. <laughs> yeah. You guys had like elaborate costumes right. and very, you know, elaborate. very high production. Um, but so I moved this to Reddit and then this fake Fitbit item. And then the first comment was, it looks like both of these girls actually need a Fitbit, not whatever this is. And I was like, oh, cool. I'm fat. Like, that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> hey, number one You're internet like, This comment. is what the real internet is like. <laughs> this yeah. is, welcome to the, to the alt-right males of Reddit. The, uh, I want to talk about that space of internet versus gallery space, right? Sure. That space in which uh, you take a risk for 100 people, most of whom you can, can have some relative control over their reaction to the work. Like, I, I feel like there's not a lot of times I go into a gallery and feel like, wow, this is super risky. Because there's nothing, there doesn't really feel like there's much you can do in a gallery that is going to seem super risky. You know, uh, I 100% agree with you. I created work for an upcoming show that I that opens on Friday. And I made the work with predominantly an internet audience in mind. Um, and then I have to put the work in this space. And I was thinking uh, it's a, the work is a bunch of videos that are self-help videos to help people appear successful. And that's like the, you can appear healthier, appear wealthier and wiser. And when you're watching the videos, if you don't know me and they're not in that art context or that space, you don't know if I'm, I'm joking. 
maybe not until like the last one when it starts to become like very like obvious. And I was like, this is great because somebody who this goes out to the internet and they don't know what to make of it and maybe they'll identify with some of it or maybe they'll dismiss it as satire, but it's unclear. And now I'm thinking about it in this gallery space where as an audience member, you know that, that I'm it's fabricated. that it's fabricated. You you know that I'm trying to say something. And then in, from that perspective, since you already think that you're a knowledgeable person to the concept, you can detach yourself from it. So I actually kind of struggle with this idea of like, is anyone going to get anything from the work that I'm going to put in this space? And I, and I kind of think no. Um, I might get something out of it, like a, a critique or maybe something I could have done better or something that was resonating. But Or a good line on the CV. Yeah. And, and that's what I, I start to, to juggle Some with. Some sort of social capital generating thing. Exactly. Like yeah. I, can, I can share on Facebook that I'm doing this. I can connect with other artists and say that I have like some type of representation in the world that they would care about. The physical one. The physical one. But in reality for the concept, like I actually don't care that it's in this gallery space. I, uh, doing a performance along with this and originally I was going to kind of mimic what the, the videos did and, and then I was like, well, maybe I'll just take 45 minutes and make people like force people to look at me and, watch the videos I made and then and then give them a test <laughs> oh <laughs> to make, sure, make sure that they got so this is essentially if you if you come on Friday you you'll be taking me. a quiz <laughs> but is it Scantron at I least it's not a pop so. quiz I pop wish so bad so what's the gallery if we were to go, come on Friday where would it where it's, would we be going it's at the corner gallery um, which is on Milwaukee Avenue and before Belmont <laughs> The Trump Diaries, day 82, April 12th. The Daily Mail newspaper settled a libel case with Melania Trump over an article about her modeling career. The newspaper had reported allegations that Melania Trump once worked as an escort, but retracted its article. Trump sought damages of $150 million. However, the amount accepted by Mrs. Trump was not disclosed in court. Reports suggest the payout was closer to $3 million, including legal costs and damages. And Secretary of State Rex Tillerson met with President Vladimir Putin of Russia for nearly two hours. The two men appeared unable to agree on the facts, much less move toward an improvement in basic relations. Tillerson said there is a low level of trust between our countries. The two world's foremost nuclear powers cannot have this kind of relationship. Trump also alleged that Russia knew of the Syrian government's plan to gas its own people in advance of a chemical weapons attack last week in northwestern Syria, adding that USA relations with Moscow were at an all-time low. Asked whether it was possible that Syrian forces could have launched the chemical attack without Russia's knowledge, Trump said, I certainly think it's possible, but I do think it's unlikely. And one day after he delivered a gaffe from the White House lectern favorably comparing Hitler to President Bashar al-Assad of Syria, then clumsily referring to Nazi death camps as, quote, Holocaust centers, Sean Spicer gave a groveling apology saying, quote, it really is painful to myself to know that I did something like that. I made a mistake. There's no other way to say it. I screwed up. Spicer offered no excuses, describing his remarks as inexcusable and reprehensible, and acknowledging that the timing during Passover and the Christian Holy Week compounds that kind of mistake. 
and Paul Manafort stepped down from guiding Trump's presidential campaign on April 19th after a brief tenure during which Trump won the Republican nomination, Democrats' emails were hacked, and the campaign's contacts with Russia came under scrutiny. Reports on Manafort's past financial dealings in Ukraine serviced and Manafort quit. But on that same day, he created a shell company that received $13 million in loans from two businesses with ties to Donald Trump, including one that partners with a Ukrainian-born billionaire. They were among some $20 million in loans secured by properties belonging to Mr. Manafort and his wife. Some of them appear to be part of an effort by Manafort to stave off a personal financial crisis stemming from failed investments with his son-in-law. Anti-corruption officials in Ukraine say $12.7 million in off-the-books cash payments were earmarked for Manafort. And the Trump administration is quickly assembling a nationwide deportation force promised on the campaign trail. A Department of Homeland Security assessment obtained by the Washington Post shows the agency has found 33,000 more detention beds to house undocumented immigrants, has opened discussions with dozens of local police forces that could be empowered with enforcement authority, and identified where construction of Trump's border wall could begin. These plans could be held up by the prohibitive costs outlined in the report and resistance in Congress, where many lawmakers are already balking at approving billions in spending on the wall and additional border security measures. And China's leader Xi Jinping and Trump spoke by phone on Wednesday about the escalating tensions with North Korea as a Chinese state-run newspaper warned the North that it faced a cutoff of vital oil supplies if it dared test a nuclear weapon. Trump cautioned Beijing in a Twitter message and a television interview that it needed to help Washington rein in North Korea. Tensions escalated as the Japanese Navy said it would join the United States Navy strike group in a mission off the Korean coast. Day 83, April 13th. The U.S. military dropped the largest non-nuclear bomb in its arsenal Thursday on the Islamic State Tunnel Complex in eastern Afghanistan. The U.S. plane dropped a GBU-43, or MOAB, the so-called mother of all bombs, clearing forces in the area. As many as 94 ISIS fighters were killed in the blast. And Stephen K. Bannon's isolation inside the White House after weeks of bitter battle with other senior aides aligned with Jared Kushner, who is the president's son-in-law, appeared to grow even starker this week after Trump undercut Bannon in an interview and downplayed his role as the Trump campaign's chief executive. Trump told New York Post columnist Michael Goodwin, quote, I didn't know Steve. I am my own strategist. That was a pointed reference to what aides described as his growing irritation that Bannon is receiving credit for being the mastermind behind Trump's victory. And The Guardian is reporting that Britain's spy agencies alerted their counterparts in Washington to contacts between members of Trump's campaign team and Russian intelligence operatives. GCHQ first became aware in late 2015 of suspicious interactions between figures connected to Trump and known or suspected Russian agents. This intelligence was passed to the U.S. as part of a routine exchange of information known as Five Eyes, they added. Day 84, April 14th. Attorney General Jeff Sessions said he's surprised Americans aren't overwhelmingly embracing his widely reported stance against marijuana, as recent polling reveals a majority of voters do in fact support legal marijuana. Sessions briefly weighed in on marijuana legislation during a discussion held at Luke Air Force Base. Sessions said, quote, when they nominated me for attorney general, you would have thought the biggest issue in America was when I said, quote, I don't think America's going to be a better place if they sell marijuana at every corner grocery store. People didn't like that. I'm surprised they didn't like that. 57% of Americans favor legalizing marijuana, according to results of a government-sponsored opinion poll. Currently, marijuana is legal for medical or recreational purposes in 28 states and D.C. Day 85, April 15th. 
In a tax day groundswell of calls for Trump to release his tax returns, hundreds of thousands of protesters turned out in American streets. Thousands marched to Trump's Mar-a-Lago getaway in Florida on a waterfront patch facing Trump's resort where he's spending the weekend. Demonstrators chanted, pay your taxes, and held signs calling him the chicken-in-chief. Trump avoided the protest, taking a circuitous route in his motorcade as he returned from a morning outing to his golf club. But while the president was spared the sight of chanting, sign-waving crowds, the demonstrations were heard around the country, and in many cases, around properties bearing the Trump name. And Trump waving from the Queen's royal gold carriage in England is not a scenario many would have foreseen a year ago, but it has become a very real prospect, forcing security services to plan an unprecedented lockdown in London. The White House has made it clear it regards the carriage procession down the mall as an essential element for an itinerary of a visit currently planned for the second week of October, according to officials. Security sources have warned the procession will require a monster security operation far greater than any recent state visit. President Obama was offered a carriage ride and declined, going in a bulletproof limousine instead. And the U.S. tourism industry expects 4.3 million fewer visitors and to lose $7.4 billion in revenue due to Trump's travel ban and reports of plans to implement, quote, extreme vetting of foreign travelers. Day 86, April 16th. Trump lashed out against citizens who take into the streets to exercise their First Amendment rights, while claiming that thousands of people who on Saturday demanded Trump finally release his full tax returns were, quote, paid protesters. Trump also tweeted, the election is over. Someone should look into who paid for the small organized rallies. Demonstrators, in fact, took to the streets in more than 150 cities across the country. An hour after wishing his 28 million followers a happy Easter, Trump again hailed his November win and called out those making his undisclosed tax history an issue. Trump himself used paid actors to pose as rally attendees during his campaign and has talked at length about the election results since his victory. North Korea launched a ballistic missile on Sunday morning from near its submarine base in Sinpo on the East Coast, but the launch was the latest in a series of failures. The missile disintegrated just after liftoff. The timing was a deep embarrassment for the North's leader, Kim Jong-un, because the missile appeared to have been launched to show a strength of force as a fleet of American warships approached his country to deter nuclear intentions. And the U.S. Secretary Rick Perry is ordering a study of the U.S. electric grid with an eye to examining whether policies that favor wind and solar energy are accelerating the retirement of coal and nuclear plants that the Trump administration believes is critical to ensuring steady and reliable power supplies. The 60-day review, which Perry set in motion on Friday, comes as regulators increasingly wonder how to balance electric reliability with a raft of state policies that prioritize less stable renewable energy sources. And Trump is ordering a change to the Department of Homeland Security and how H-1B visas are awarded. The agency will be instructed to move away from the current lottery system into a merit-based system so that visas only land in the hands of highly paid, specially skilled applicants. Day 87, April 17th. Trump is willing to consider ordering kinetic military action, including a sudden strike to counteract North Korea's destabilizing actions in the region, said a person familiar with the White House's thinking. Trump's strong preference is for China to take the lead on dealing with North Korea. Trump's strategy isn't exactly a departure from longstanding U.S. policy. He isn't particularly interested in toppling Kim Jong-un's regime and isn't looking to force a reunification of the two Koreas either. Day 88, April 18. 
U.S. warships are now in a northerly course for the Korean Peninsula after sailing in the opposite direction. The Navy posted a photo of the USS Carl Vinson sailing in the Sundra Strait off the coast of Indonesia on Saturday, which is 3,500 miles southwest of the Korean Peninsula. The picture was taken four days after Sean Spicer described the warship's mission in the Sea of Japan. Critics of the Department of Homeland Security should shut up and assume the agency is acting appropriately, John Kelly said in a speech. The problem, Kelly said, is not the federal agents enforcing immigration laws, but the political games that have been played. He called criticism of the agency's work, quote, misguided and based on inaccurate reporting. And Trump raised eyebrows by calling Turkish President Recep Erdogan to congratulate him on his contestant controversial referendum. That referendum changed Turkey from a parliamentary democracy to one led by an executive president with strong central powers, and it passed by a slim margin of 51 to 48 percent. The State Department urged Turkey to respect the basic rights of its citizens and then noted election irregularities witnessed by monitors with the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And Ivanka Trump won approval from the Chinese government for three new trademarks the same night she dined with the president of China at Mar-a-Lago. Criminal conflict of interest law prohibits federal officials like Ivanka and Jared Kushner, her husband, from participating in government matters that could impact their own financial interest or that of their spouse. And Sean Spicer argued that more public disclosure is unnecessary and harmful to Trump's ability to govern. He defended Trump's reversal of Obama's practice of periodically releasing visitor logs and suggested that doing so would discourage outsiders who require anonymity to offer frank advice to the president and his top advisors. There were already procedures in place, actually, to provide anonymity when needed. Day 89, April 19th. Jason Chavez, a Republican who doggedly investigated Hillary Clinton before the 2016 presidential election but declined to investigate Trump, said Wednesday he won't run for re-election or any other office in 2018. Chavez has strolled to four easy re-election wins in his Republican-friendly Utah congressional district. However, he was facing a surprising challenge from a Democratic newcomer who had raised more than a half million dollars by tapping into anger over Chavez's recent comment suggesting people should spend their money on health insurance instead of iPhones. And the promise to enact a sweeping overhaul of the tax code is in jeopardy nearly 100 days into Trump's tenure. His refusal to release his own tax returns is emerging as a central hurdle of tax reform, as Democrats are pledging not to cooperate on rewriting of the tax code unless they know specifically how those revisions would benefit the billionaire president and his family. And Sheldon Adelson, the casino magnate and stalwart Republican donor, gave $5 million to support the festivities surrounding Trump's inauguration. That gift is the largest single contribution ever given to an inauguration. Two dozen million-dollar checks from corporations and wealthy individuals were given to Trump for the inauguration, including from Robert Kraft, he's the owner of the New England Patriots, Stephen Cohen and Charles Schwab, both billionaire investors, and Robert Parsons, the founder of GoDaddy.com. In previous inaugurations, individuals were allowed to make contributions of only up to $250,000. Limits are set by the administrations. And Bill O'Reilly, one of Trump's staunchest defenders, has been forced out of his position as a primetime host on Fox News after the disclosure of multiple settlements involving sexual harassment allegations against him. O'Reilly's ouster brings an abrupt and embarrassing end to O'Reilly's two-decade reign as one of the most popular and influential commentators on television. Fox News' parent company said in a statement, quote, after a thorough and careful review of the allegations, the company and O'Reilly have agreed he will not be returning to the Fox News channel. Trump had defended O'Reilly's behavior before Trump had defended O'Reilly's behavior when the allegations were first reported by the New York Times. 
and Trump's approval rating over the first 100 days is the lowest ever recorded for a president. He is a full 15 points behind George Bush at just 40%. In addition, just 45% of people say Trump keeps his promises now, down from 62% in February. Trump's approval rating this week has cratered to 33%. These are the Trump Diaries. This week, Marco Polo Soto from Contratiempo spoke with Georgina Valverde about her participation in the most recent exhibition at the National Museum of Mexican Arts. The museum is celebrating its 30th anniversary as part of the artistic community in Pilsen. They also spoke about Caracol, part of the gathering space at Burnham Wildlife Corridor. Contratiempo recently joined the Lumpen Radio family, and the show airs every Sunday at 9 a.m. This is Contratiempo Radio. Con nosotros está Georgina Valverde, que nos va a platicar acerca de su participación en el trigésimo aniversario del Museo Nacional de Arte Mexicano de Chicago. Pues, como ya lo anunciaste, el museo está celebrando este aniversario, es una, una fecha muy importante, eh, y organizó una exposición de artistas que están trabajando localmente, ¿no? artistas mexicanos, mexicoamericanos, que trabajan en, en Chicago. Por supuesto que no son no este no es una muestra eh, exhaustiva ¿no? no 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 están representados todos los artistas hay, hay, hay muchos artistas en esta ciudad pero um, es uh, muy emocionante ver cómo ha crecido el arte las artes visuales en esta ciudad yo llegué a Chicago en 1900 89 uh -huh. y, eh, y la he, he visto crecer no este, este esta generación nueva de artistas artistas este jóvenes um, que han sido nutridos por muchos programas educativos ¿no? de, de, en, en las artes en, en, en Chicago como uh, Marwin Foundation este la galería 37 o sea, es, ese es como el trasfondo ¿no? de, de esta explosión artística y, por supuesto, pues la, la gran este, tenacidad y la gran energía de la comunidad mexicana ¿no? por expresarse, por manifestarse, por crear algo nuevo. Claro. Es una exhibición okay. y resalta 30 artistas uh -huh. eh, y son pues obras contemporáneas, una vez más, ¿no? de artistas que están trabajando en esta ciudad. Artistas muy este, establecidos, como Marcos Raya, por ejemplo, uh -huh. que es un artista que llegó a, a Chicago en los años 50 y que es autor de muchos de los murales que... Eh, muchos de los murales en, en la comunidad de Pilsen, claro. los murales de Casastlán, por ejemplo. Y artistas más, este, más recientes, más... Uh, también que, que, que están contribuyendo tremendamente, ¿no? Como, por ejemplo, María Gaspar con su proyecto este, um, 96 Acres, que trata de la, del sistema este, de la prisión, ¿no? De las prisiones en, en... Bueno, la prisión en la cárcel, ¿no? De la, de la 26 y la California. Okay. La pieza que yo tengo en esta exposición se titula Temazcal. Entonces, este, y responde, es una pieza que, que 
eh, acabo de producir para, precisamente para la exhibición del museo y se refiere a la historia de, de la arquitectura ¿no? del, del, del edificio del museo que fue un balneario y también como baños públicos. Hay mucha gente que no, que tal vez no este, está al tanto de que a principio de siglo, del siglo XX, no había un buen sistema de drenaje ¿no? de, en la ciudad. De agua. Uh -huh. Y sobre todo en las comunidades este, inmigrantes, que Pilsen pues, es, siempre ha sido una comunidad de inmigrantes, uh -huh. eh, pues no había, no había baños ¿no? En, 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 la, en las casas. Entonces... Muchas ciudades, Chicago eh, y muchas otras ciudades en, en todo el mundo, construyeron baños públicos. En los años, pues te digo, al principio, de, de los, en los 20 um, Y el museo fue pues uno de esos locales, ¿no? Principalmente balneario, pero me parece que también tenían, una vez más, baños públicos. ¿Y tu obra está inspirada en, en, en eso? Sí, quería un contraste. O sea, el temazcal es el baño mesoamericano. Claro. Eh, y ese contraste, ¿no?, entre los baños públicos que son como más, no sé, anónimos, pero, pero a la vez comunitarios, ¿no? Es, es donde se congrega la comunidad. Ajá. Los baños públicos, pues, tienen una historia muy larga, ¿no?, que se remonta a los, no nada más a los romanos, a los persas, ¿no? Es, uh -huh. Pero en Mesoamérica el temazcal es, este, tiene también este, dimensiones rituales, aparte de ser medicinal. Entonces, es una tiene capas muy ricas, ¿no? Que a mí siempre me han interesado porque he participado en temazcales. Y se presentan, esto, la, o sea, se presenta hasta agosto. La exhibición del museo, sí. Sí, ok. Entonces, permanece y dura ahí largo rato. Hay, hay varias oportunidades para ir a verla. Sí, 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 y la gente, y, o sea, si quieren visitarla o más información, pues pueden visitar la página del museo, nationalmuseumofmexicanart.org, o rg. Muchas gracias. Y, Georgina, cuéntanos un poquito más sobre, sobre tu trayectoria. Yo sé que ha sido larga y, y, y a lo mejor no tenemos el tiempo eh, justo para hacerlo. Tú llegaste de México en el 89, eh, llegué a Chicago en 89, a... Pero, pero llegué a los Estados Unidos en 78. Ok. Uh -huh. eh, ¿Por qué Chicago? Chicago porque viví en Virginia y eh, en una zona rural en donde no había presencia mexicana. Y la primera vez que vine a visitar Chicago, pues fue como un despertar, ¿no? Este, la, era antes de, la, de, de NAFTA, antes de la globalización, entonces, también, o sea, la, la presencia mexicana, los productos mexicanos, la comunidad mexicana, pues me llamó. Eso fue lo que te, lo que, lo que te llamó la atención, sí. el gancho. Este, eh, ¿Viste alguna posibilidad para hacer arte? Pues yo ya había estudiado la carrera de artes visuales en uh -huh. Virginia. Eh, y llegué y pues empecé a conectarme ¿no? con, con artistas aquí en la ciudad. ¿Obtuviste más inspiración aquí que en algún otro lado? ¿O, o cómo, cómo, cómo fue que te llamó la atención empezar a crear arte aquí en Chicago? Bueno, yo ya, yo ya tenía sí. una trayectoria, ¿no? Empecé uh -huh. como grabadora. Y este al llegar a Chicago, pues conocí gente como René Arceo, por ejemplo, uno de los artistas uh -huh. que está eh, exhibiendo en, este, en esta muestra y que en, en aquel entonces trabajaba en el Museo Nacional Mexicano. Uh -huh. eh, en realidad el museo para mí fue 
una de las plataformas que me lanzó, que me otorgó mis primeras exhibiciones okay. eh, en una muestra colectiva y luego René Arce organizó una muestra y así. O sea, la, la, la importancia ¿no? de, de esa comunidad que, que acoge al, a, pues, a sus hermanos y hermanas. ¿no? Claro. ¿Qué es Caracol, Georgina? Caracol es una colaboración con Contratiempo uh -huh. que eh, eh, organizó el Chicago Park District y el Field Museum hace como año y medio. Eh, hicieron una, una convocación para organizar eh, equipos de artistas y organizaciones comunitarias que propusieran espacios pequeños espacios comunitarios, ¿no? de, de congregación uh -huh. a lo largo del de corredor ecológico Burnham, que es una tira eh, de eh, natural, ¿no? ecológica eh, a lo largo del lago. Empieza abarca como siete millas desde McCormick Place hasta la calle 47 por ahí. Okay. Y Caracol es uno de esos espacios. La idea de Caracol es que el Caracol es un, un, una criatura que lleva su casa, ¿no? O sea, encima. Claro. Entonces, es un símbolo muy interesante para pensar en el inmigrante. Claro, el inmigrante o sea, sí, no sí, llega aquí sin recursos. Lo que pasa es que tiene que, eh, tiene que encontrar la forma de... de poner en diálogo esos recursos culturales uh -huh. con uh -huh. los recursos culturales de sí. este entorno. Entonces, nos pareció un, a los integrantes de este equipo, Diana Solís, José Terrazas y Muera Pujols, un símbolo potente ¿no? para pensar en, en este, pues ambos, ¿no? la, la, la fragilidad de, del inmigrante, pero también la, la, la fortaleza. La ¿no? fortaleza, uh -huh. sí, sus raíces. ¿no? Ahí. Sí, Ajá. y Caracol pues consiste en una mesa en forma de espiral, que también eh, si, simboliza la mesa de trabajo del artista, del escritor, pero es al aire público. Eh, en, este, en esta maravillosa este, reserva ecológica y, este, y sirve como un espacio para, para manifestar la cultura, ¿no? Ambos este, como, como aula al aire libre y también un lugar donde se pueden hacer presentaciones de poesía, de música, de sí. convivios. Sí, lo, lo, lo he visto y está muy, muy, muy preciso. Es un espacio abierto para el público. Está sobre el lago, eh, cerca de la... entre McCormick sí. y la 47, ¿correcto? O sea, si, si salen en la calle 31 eh, y van hacia el, la parte norte del estacionamiento, cuando este, lleguen al... al ¿Cómo se llama? Al, ¿El camino? Al camino peatonal, ¿no? Ajá, de, ajá. De, del lago. Ahí está, o sea, en, en la en, en el medio de la, del llano. <risa> Con vista al lago, precioso lugar. Un poco de, de color para el llano. Perfecto. Eh, muchísimas gracias, Georgina Valverde, por habernos acompañado y seguimos aquí con Contratiempo Radio. <risa> The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. 
The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.